0: Thanks, Ollie, and it's good to see you all again this morning. As Ollie has mentioned, we're starting now uh, a new series on the second part of Romans, and our long-term plan (coughs) for looking in detail at this book of Romans is to do it in four parts over a period of about two years. We've already looked at part one a few months ago, and today we will be looking at part two, which is the second half of chapter five up to chapter eight. Now, we have only about 15 minutes, so let's use it to introduce part two. And let's begin by reading some verses from the start of this part, from the middle of chapter 5 of Romans. So let's read, first of all, from verse 12 in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one to come. Down to verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, before we look at the main themes of part two, let's remind ourselves of what part one of Romans was about. Romans starts by pointing out that there's something seriously wrong with the human race. You just need to look across our world today, and particularly at the history of humanity in the last 100 years, to realize the evil that human beings are capable of. And the problems in our world are not just with humanity as a whole. The problem affects every individual in one way or the other. And that's a problem that the Bible calls sin. Now, in part one, Paul shows how we can be saved from the penalty for sin. The problem of sin starts when people refuse to accept God's authority or even refuse to recognize his existence. That then leaves us as being the center of our own universe. This leads to a very self-centered view of the world. We live selfish lives. We think we are more important than other people and we condemn other people for things for which we excuse ourselves but although many people live as though they're not accountable to god god is still god and god will hold everyone to account that's the mark of how seriously god takes each of us and in this section god is presented as our judge and in paul's argument in the first part He shows that we have no excuse, and we need to accept and recognize that we have no excuse for our sin, because then we will be encouraged to throw ourselves upon the mercy of the court, as it were. And we do that, we rely on God's mercy by putting our faith in Jesus, his son, who died to pay the penalty for our sin. And when we do that, God announces that we are legally and completely right with him. And the term for that in Romans is being justified. Now the book doesn't end there, so what happens next? To explain this, imagine, if you could, a man with a terrible alcohol problem. And to feed his habit, he turns to crime. He robs people and eventually kills someone. He comes before the judge. He pleads that he's not responsible because his mother was an alcoholic before he was born, and he inherited that tendency to alcoholism from her. Now, while the judge may have some sympathy for his case, that family history has no bearing on whether the man is guilty or not. He committed the crimes, and so he is guilty. He is without excuse. Now, suppose uh, in some way this unfortunate alcoholic finds that there is someone else who has taken his sentence the alcoholic is told by the judge that he is a free man but while he can walk free from the court he is still not really free he is not free from the destructive power of his alcoholism that put him there in the first place Now. Uh, uh, what he needs now is not another judge, but he needs a doctor. And the doctor will uh, take into account the alcoholic man's family history. This time, his history is important. The doctor will explore uh, the weaknesses of his personality and guide the man through a long and difficult course of treatment. The doctor will not condemn him, even if he has a relapse, even if he returns temporarily to a life of crime. He will not condemn him, but he must diagnose him. And this is what the second part of Romans is about, but at a much deeper level. It's about taking a believer who has been forgiven and justified, but who still has the inner problem of sin, which still exerts a controlling and destructive power in our lives so to summarize part two what we're going to be saying is how a person a justified person can be saved from the controlling power of sin and in this section we will see God as our doctor and not as our judge we must allow him to expose to us the true nature of our sin not to condemn us But to get us to cooperate in his treatment process. And finally, we will see God's radical process of curing us from the problem of sin's control in our lives by giving us the very life of Christ, his Son, and transforming our whole person through a process which we call being sanctified. So let's. Look briefly at how Paul begins this section of chapter 5. How does God, as our doctor, treating people with this fundamental problem of the control of sin, how does God, the doctor, begin the process of diagnosing the source of sin's controlling power in our lives? Well, Paul does what any good doctor would do. And there are some doctors with us this morning, and you would do the same. He writes down our medical history. And in this, section, this little section that we read this morning, God is going to be giving us a spiritual medical history of the human race. And we read how Paul divided up the spiritual medical history of the human race, as it were, into three stages. He speaks first about stage one, which is the period he describes as being from Adam to Moses. So the period of history beginning with Adam, the father of the whole human race. Stage two then begins with Moses. And then the third stage in human history is the stage beginning with the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. So we have these three phases of human history which uh, some theologians are pleased to call dispensations. Now, how were they different from each other? In stage one, Paul says that the human race after Adam had to live without any divine law. There was no sense of justice at this period of human history. There were no commands of God saying what was right and wrong. And some in our world today might think, happy days. But what would you think it would be like to live in a society that there was no concept of justice? There were no laws from our creator. How would you protect society from evil? What would you do if someone attacked you and there was no system of justice, no even sense of justice or of right or wrong? The book of Genesis describes the principles, if you like, which govern people's behavior in this early stage of human history, how people's behavior was governed. For instance, in Genesis 4, I think it is, we read about a man called Lamech, one of the early leaders in humanity. He was the seventh from Adam. And he describes how he would govern his society. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamak seventy-sevenfold." Notice the emphasis on avenging, on vengeance. Vengeance was the precursor of any sense of justice. And society was dominated by vengeance. There are some societies and some cultures today where vengeance dominates uh, even more than justice. And during this part of human history, society was under the control of primeval human forces of vengeance and violence and killing. And even God used death to limit the extent of evil. God had to dramatically cut the life expectancy of humanity from around the 900s down to 120 years. That was one of the purposes of the flood. God used death to limit evil. uh, Genesis also tells us that in the first generation after Adam, Cain founded his own city, his own independent state. And uh, in rebellion against God, That's Cain set up his own state. Now, whenever you exclude God's authority as Cain did, then the state takes on the ultimate power. And we've seen in modern times what it is like to live in a totalitarian state which exercises complete control over people's thinking and over their behavior and demands complete loyalty. Life in a society like that becomes unbearable. It's the opposite of freedom. And so in these early times, humanity uh, lived under that regime. But then humanity moved to the next phase of its history with the rise of the first civilizations. And systems of law started to emerge. Arising out of this at the time of Moses, Paul records that God delivered to the new nation of Israel his own personal law. Now, by law, we don't mean just the Ten Commandments, but also the whole system of justice with its concept of guilt and punishment. Now, living in a society governed by God's law was vastly superior to the previous system based on vengeance and violence and death. But in Israel's case, God's law was about more than just making society more orderly. It was about bringing people into a personal relationship with God, with a righteous and a just God. And this needed a knowledge of the law and the character of God. But there was a major problem with this. Paul says that the law actually increased people's awareness of their sin. And when God's law encountered sin in the lives of his people, it produced guilt That's what law does. That's what justice does. It produces a sense of guilt. And that guilt before God was a barrier to having a personal relationship with God. Any religion, even the best religion, often leaves people open to being governed by guilt. That's the result of being governed, if you like, under law. And this is why God moved to the climax of his plan for humanity, to make it possible to have a personal relationship with God, unsullied by guilt. And this was his third stage. And he did this by sending his son, Jesus, into the world. And his son had to die and rise from the dead again. And Jesus came in to usher in a drastically different culture, if I could use that word, a drastically different way of governing people's lives. Instead of merely trying to curtail people's evil behavior, instead of merely slowing down the process of decay and death of humanity, God has done two completely new things through Jesus. Firstly, God's answer to the problem of death is new life. And anyone who puts their faith in Jesus in the section of Romans, Paul says, receives the very life of Christ Jesus himself, which the Bible calls eternal life. And that is free. That's uh, under God's generous grace. And secondly, to give us hope as humans, not of a decline uh, leading to ultimate death, but instead we find Paul saying that Christ has created a new human race is, if you like, a parallel to Adam, a parallel race, human race, and anyone who is in Christ is in this new human race. Paul compares and contrasts Adam to Jesus Christ. From Adam, we all inherit some form of the damage of sin in our lives and personalities. We all inherit the inevitability of of death, that is our inheritance from Adam. But by that same principle of inheritance, when we become part of Christ's new humanity, we likewise inherit the righteous instincts of Jesus himself, we inherit the glorious future and destiny which God has in store for his Son. Now, we might complain about being in Adam means that we inherit death, we inherit a propensity to sin. We may say, that's not fair, I don't deserve it. But in the same way, when we become part of Christ's new humanity, we don't deserve all that we get, but it is an unalterable fact. We can never be separated from God's loving plans for us. Now, you may have noticed if you were paying attention when we were reading those few verses from Romans chapter 5, that Paul mentions three times the concept of reigning. I don't mean the weather that we get here in Northern Ireland, but in, reigning in the sense of government, if you like, the reigning regime of humanity in each of these three stages of human history. Paul mentions three times who or what was reigning. He says in stage one that death Reigned. Death as a way of limiting human evil. In stage two, the regime was law. And so Paul says in this section that that second stage of human history was governed by being under law. But the third stage is a completely new regime. And Paul again uses the word reigning. And he says that in this third phase, there's grace reigns, and we are under grace. What God had to do was, and what he has done in this third phase of human history is to create the only possible environment in which he, as a doctor, can reach deep down into our hearts and get to grips with the problem of sin inside us. And he has done that by placing Christians under a completely new regime, in a completely new system of government, not based on law, but based on grace, based on the assurance of God's complete forgiveness, no matter what sin is discovered in our lives in the process of sanctification. We have the guarantee that God will never give up on us, will never say, oh, you're just too difficult a case, Uh, I, I can't do anything with you. We have the copper-bottomed assurance that if during this painful process uh, even more sin becomes uh, apparent, we can be sure that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. And this assurance has been signed, as it were, in the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, many Christians struggle with sin. Perhaps we never reveal it to anyone but we often struggle with sin and with sinful habits. Sometimes even to the extent that we can be tempted to give up living the life, the Christian life, seriously. And I hope that through this part of Romans over the next seven weeks or so, we will all uh, be encouraged to open our hearts to God as our doctor and as our savior and to cooperate with him as he deals with the problem of breaking the control of sin in our lives and as he prepares us for fulfilling the wonderful eternal destiny which God has for saved men and women. So let's bring our time together to a close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the realistic and yet radical solution to the greatest problem humanity has faced, the problem of sin. And we thank you that your solution is not merely to limit the damage, but to create new people with a whole wonderful destiny before us as sons and daughters of God. We pray that your word would speak to us and encourage us during these difficult times we live in, even with all the personal battles and demons that we might be fighting. We pray as we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus, amen.